This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. Welcome to the Osher Institute of Lifelong Learning. I'm glad you all could come. Uh, we have an interesting program today, and this program is meant to honor belatedly the service of a group of flyers who served in World War II. World War II generation has been called the Great Generation, and the Tuskegee Airmen were some of the greatest of the great of that generation, certainly among the most noble. And here we are six days, six decades later, uh, in effect, trying to mitigate some of the stain of those days that was part of the heroism that all went into World War II in that generation. In March of this year, in 2007, the, in the Capitol Rotunda in Washington, some 300 men uh, of the legendary Tuskegee Airmen uh, received probably the highest honor this country can afford, which is the Congressional Gold Medal. And this took place in the rotunda of the Capitol building, and our speaker today, Robert Maxwell, uh, was one of those honored with the Congressional Gold Medal. Mr. Maxwell has an interesting background. He is still president of Bob Maxwell & Associates, a technical consulting company. He was a B-25 pilot in the Tuskegee Airmen in what was called, as you'll all remember, the Army Air Corps in World War II. And he, in civilian life, has had a distinguished record as well. Uh, Mr. Maxwell received, after the war, his bachelor's degree in engineering from the City College, now called the City University of New York. He has two master's degrees, one from the Stevens Institute of Technology and a master in business administration uh, from UCLA. He is a propulsion systems engineer in the aerospace in industry, if you all know what that means. And he's been director of system engineering for the U.S. Department of Transportation. He was transportation manager in the Office of Technical Assessment of the U.S. Congress, and he was a representative of General Electric Company in the Federal Aviation Administration. Mr. Maxwell moved to San Diego in 1987, and at some time thereafter, there was organized a group of Tuskegee Airmen San Diego chapter, and he is the president of that group. It's called the B.O. Davis Jr. chapter of the Tuskegee Airmen, B.O. General B.O. Davis being the commander of the Tuskegee Airmen. Currently, Mr. Maxwell is on the board of directors of the San Diego Air and Space Museum. Uh, he has taught at UCSD for a number of years in the extension. He taught a course in transportation, and uh, he taught a course in entrepreneurship. Uh, he's had his own business. He was in the printing business for a while in Encinitas, and uh, he was vice president of superior engineering and electronics when he came to San Diego. We are very happy and proud and honored to have with us today 
Mr. Robert Maxwell, or should I say Lieutenant Robert Maxwell. He said Bob is fine. Well, I do uh, appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and to tell you a little bit about the Tuskegee Airmen. Uh, in my uh, uh, talk today, uh, uh, this is uh, roughly what I'm going to say. I'd like to give you a little bit of a historical perspective first about blacks in the military and blacks in aviation and then go into how and when was the Tuskegee Army Airfield created that produced this series of pilots and uh, talk a little bit about the various squadrons and the operational uh, arena that uh, the Tuskegee Airmen served in. And of course, as you know, uh, partly due to uh, the efforts of the Tuskegee Airmen, we were able to get the integration of the armed services, and talk a little bit about that, and then a little bit about the Congressional Gold Medal. And last but not least, our organization, the Tuskegee Airmen Incorporated. Now, my presentation is not going to be too long, and I'm going to, after it, I'm certainly be pleased to answer any questions that you might have. So to start off a little bit of a historical perspective, there were a few uh, blacks in the forefront of aviation back in the 20s and 30s, but not many. One of them was shown here, uh, Bessie Coleman. She was the first black woman to get a pilot's license. But she had to go to France in order to get it because no, she couldn't find anybody that would, would teach her here. But she went over to France and got her license and came back here and uh, had a career in barnstorming. You know, these pilots used to fly around in these old airplanes and do all sorts of stunts. Unfortunately, uh, one of those stunts, she, she succumbed. But Bessie Coleman is one of the few prior to the 1940s that, that were in aviation. And uh, when uh, I'd like to talk just a little bit about blacks in the military. Now, contrary to the fact that there weren't more many blacks in aviation, uh, African Americans have always served our country right from the American Revolution on down. In the uh, American Revolution, the Massachusetts uh, militia had uh, black uh, soldiers participating. Of course, in the Civil War, there were over 300,000 African Americans that served in the Civil War, and 10,000 or, or more that were killed in that war. They tell me that in the Spanish-American War, when Teddy Roosevelt led the charge up San Juan Hill, there were black soldiers behind him. And of course, in World War I, we had a number of uh, black African-Americans who served in the infantry and in service groups uh, in France. Even though blacks served in the military, they served primarily in support functions, service functions. Very few of them in, were officers. Even the all-black 
infantry group were commanded by white officers. And this was reflected the social uh, status of the day, separation of the races, uh, segregation and discrimination against not only uh, blacks, but all minorities. And so uh, with, that, with that backdrop, we, we entered into World War II. And one of the questions that sometimes asks, you know, why would blacks serve a nation that would not serve them? And I think at the ceremony that we had on the gold medal, Colin Powell answered that. And he said, because they believed in the Declaration of Independence, and they believed that all men were created equal. And what else was there to, for them to believe in? Well, let me go on now and talk about the war in Europe in, 19, in the 1930s. The world was really in a crisis with Hitler just, and his armies just devastating uh, the European countries and uh, Italy and Japan. We were really... The world, as I say, was in a crisis, and this country began to realize that we weren't going to be able to stay out of it. One of the things they did realize that this war was going to be fought not only on the ground, but in the air, and that was going to be very important. And they started what they called a civilian pilot training program in 1940. The idea would be to train pilots uh, so that they could serve as instructors and also form a nucleus for pilots that would be trained for the military. And uh, that's how uh, Tuskegee, got, Tuskegee Institute got involved. They were one of the 30-odd uh, universities and colleges throughout the country that uh, had a civilian pilot training program, and they started training pilots down there in, at Tuskegee, Alabama in 1941. Now, as the war really heated up, I mean, we hadn't Pearl Harbor December 41, but prior to Pearl Harbor, it was obvious we were going to be involved in this war, and we needed every possible uh, able-bodied man. At that time, when they were, the War Department was trying to get every uh, able-bodied man into service, they still wouldn't train uh, blacks as pilots because they would have to be trained along with white uh, soldiers. But there were a lot of pressure on them from the various groups, the various African-American newspapers, and, and just a lot of people that said, well, now is the time we, we should break down that tradition. So the War Department had a dilemma. You know, what should they do? And they solved this dilemma by deciding to set up a Tuskegee Army Airfield just to train black pilots, a separate but equal facility just to train black pilots. Now, Walter White, who was the chairman of the NAACP, fired off a telegram to the War Department saying, we oppose this. This is just a continuation of segregation, and we oppose it. But the War Department had made up their mind. They built an entire Army Air Corps base at Tuskegee, Alabama, 
just to train black pilots. Now, when they uh, uh, started training pilots in 1941, uh, one of the uh, people that was fortunately on the scene was a young man by the name of Benjamin O. Davis, Jr. Now, Ben Davis's father had been an, a military man. He had been in the Army, rose from an enlisted man all the way to a general. First black general in the Army, not in the Air Corps, but in the Army, in the Service Corps. And, of course, his son was going to be a military man. <laughs> I don't think Ben, Jr. had much to say about it. And in any event, uh, Ben was, uh, got a uh, commission to the uh, West Point, the military academy, and entered in the military academy. And uh, when he got there, within a couple of days, he found that he was going to be subject, subjected to a lot of pressure. The cadets decided they weren't going to talk to him. And so they didn't talk to him, except in the line of duty. For four years, he went through and graduated from West Point. And that didn't discourage him. And it was one of the things that he brought to the, his subsequent commands, this determination not to give in. He was the uh, commanding officer of the 99th, 332nd, and other groups retired after 35 years as a three-star general. And then uh, about five years ago, uh, five or six years ago, Bill Clinton made him a four-star general. More than any other person, Ben Davis, you know, deserves credit for whatever the Tuskegee Airmen accomplished. Well, now, the first pilots that were trained at uh, Tuskegee were fighter pilots. And uh, they uh, flew the P-40 airplane, which is shown here. Uh, this group was activated in uh, 1942, and they were initial assignment was to North Africa uh, in April of 43. They flew a number of missions, shot down not many, but a few aircraft, because there weren't many aircraft in the North African theater. But they destroyed many important ground installations. Meanwhile, they continued to train pilots back at Tuskegee, and they started forming additional squadrons. And ultimately, there were four squadrons uh, that were formed that formed the 3332nd Fighter Group. And they flew the P-39, the P-47, and what is shown here is the P-51 aircraft, which they painted with characteristic red tails. Now, the, uh, the uh, 332nd Fighter Group was based in Italy, and uh, they started operations just about the time in 1944 when the Army Air Corps started this mass bombardment of Germany and, and, uh, and, and Italy and Poland and other, other uh, countries. It was uh, daylight bombing raids in which they would have... 75 or 100 bombers, B-17s and B-24s, fly over and drop bombs and did a lot of damage to the German war machine. But at the same time, the German Luftwaffe would just come along and pick those bombers off 
In April 1944, they lost an average of 12 bombers a day, over 360 bombers and their crews. Well, some of the crews were able to uh, parachute out and, and, and were saved, but it was a tremendous uh, uh, price that they were paying for this bombardment. So the Army Air Corps decided to have the fighter groups fly uh, escort missions for these bombers. And one of the groups that was assigned this job was the 332nd, and uh, they flew over 200 bomber missions. And the guys explained this, that they'd, they'd uh, fly out and meet the bomber gr group at a certain location, and then they would go up to altitude and fly over the bombers and look, look for any <laughs> marauding aircraft and uh, chase them if they came along. So they flew over 200 of these bomber missions, uh, missions over Munich, Berlin, Budapest, Bucharest, and they never lost a bomber to enemy aircraft. And uh, as I like to say, I feel that a lot of that discipline, a lot of that success was due to Benjamin O. Davis, Jr. and the discipline that, that he installed in his group. Now, their uh, war record, pretty impressive. They uh, destroyed or damaged over 136 aircraft in the air, 270 on the ground, a number of barges, boxcars, locomotives, and ammunition dumps, and one destroyer. I may tell you a little bit about that a little bit later. But anyway, they did uh, set a very, uh, very excellent record of combat, and they flew a total of 1,500 missions. They sent over 450 pilots overseas. And meanwhile, they were still training pilots back at Tuskegee Army Airfield. And there were a total of 992 pilots that were trained at Tuskegee Army Airfield, first as fighter pilots and then as bomber pilots. And I was one of those that was trained as a bomber pilot. But before we leave the, the, the accomplishments of the 332nd, unfortunately, as in combat operations, there are fatalities, and they, there were 66 that were killed in combat operations, and another 32 that were prisoners of war. There were a number of outstanding pilots, of course, all of them were outstanding in some ways, but a couple that really excelled. One was a fellow by the name of Lee Archer, and he f shot down five German planes, flew over 169 uh, combat missions. Uh, he, after the war, uh, served in the military for 25, 30 years, but then uh, became an executive for General Foods and Philip Morris. Another one was a fellow by the name of Roscoe Brown. He was a commander of the 100th Fighter Group, and uh, he was the first to shoot down a, a German jet. You know, the Germans, towards the end of the war, introduced these jets, the ME-262, and that was going to rule the, <laughs> the air. But Roscoe was the first one to shoot down a German jet using a, a P-51. 
Then after the war, uh, Roscoe got his degree in education, doctorate in education, and he's currently director of the Center for Urban Education Policy at the City University of New York. Another outstanding pilot was a fellow by the name of Charles McGee. Now, McGee flew not only World War II, but in Korea and in Vietnam. And he flew 409 combat missions, which is more than any other Air Force pilot has ever flown or ever will fly. And I got to know Colonel McGee and I used to say, you know, what kind of a rabbit's foot do you carry around with you, <laughs> Charles? You got, you know, 409 combat missions. So these were a couple of the outstanding pilots of the group. Uh, I want to move for a moment to talk about the twin-engine pilots in the bomb group. And this is a picture of the B-25 which was one of the most widely used medium bombers in World War II. And uh, this was a, uh, the airplane that I trained in. I flew the B-25, and it was a great experience flying that airplane. There were over 250 twin-engine pilots trained at Tuskegee, and they were assembling with their crews and whatnot, just ready to go over to the Pacific when the war was over. And some of the guys in my class were disappointed that they didn't get a chance to get in and see some action. Not me, though. I was just as happy that the war was over because I had other things I was going to do. But at any rate, the, uh, that was a, a short history of the, uh, the uh, pilots and the operational groups and it led largely due to their efforts, led to the President Truman's executive order, which is issued in 1948, and which established equal treatment for all those in the military, including women. And so we have today, as you know, in our military services, uh, you know, people, young men and women of all uh, races and ethnic and religious backgrounds. And the Air Force, as a result, after that order was issued, was, were among the forefront of instituting that uh, equality uh, practice. I'd like to mention just one other young man who uh, was trained at Tuskegee. He's a fellow by the name of Daniel James, or his nickname was Chappie, shown here. And uh, Chappie was a big guy, as you can probably see. He was about six foot four and 250 pounds. And uh, some interesting stories about him fitting into the small cockpits of the fighters. But anyway, uh, Chappie went on after the war and a number of different assignments and became a four-star general. He was the first four-star general, black four-star general in the Army Air Force. He became commander of the North American Air Defense Command. Now, the, once this line had been broken, it really did serve as an opportunity to young, uh, young men to get into the military and to go into flying operations. And some of these, what we like to call second generation military are listed here. A fellow by the name of Lloyd Newton, 
His nickname was Fig, Fig Newton. <laughs> he, was, uh, he became the f- commander of the Air Force Training Command over all training operations. It's kind of ironic, you know, because before the war, they wouldn't even train pilots, black pilots now. They had a black man who was a commander of all the training operations. But another fellow by the name of Walter Davis, a vice admiral, who lives here in San Diego. He was commander of the U.S. Ranger Carrier Group 66. He was a commanding officer of Spar Wars. Uh, I had Admiral Davis over to talk to some of the kids at uh, a couple of events, and he used to tell them about landing on the carriers. He made over 900 carrier landings which really strikes me. I mean, I had enough trouble landing on the ground, much less on a carrier. We had Major General Charles Bolden of the Marine Corps, test pilot who was commander of the, one of the expeditionary forces, and an astronaut, flew four shuttle flights, and four-star General Lester Lyles, who was commander of the Air Force Systems Command. Now, that, that was second generation, but some of the Tuskegee Airmen that went into civilian life, uh, William Coleman, who was the Secretary of Transportation, Coleman Young, someone spoke to me about just earlier today, who was the mayor of Detroit, and others who served in various high-level positions in government and industry. Uh, beyond the, the Tuskegee Airmen, we believe, de- demonstrated beyond doubt that black citizens of this country could perform as combat fighter pilots, carrying out missions that they were been assigned with skill and determination and success. I don't have time to get into it today, but they were not willing to accept the status quo of blacks in America. And many of their actions helped the civil rights movement of the 60s and led to the, not only to the integration of the armed services, but a significant contribution to the civil rights movement. There is a statue at the Air Force Academy, and on that statue are these words. They rose from adversity through courage, commitment, and capacity to serve America on silver wings. To set a standard, few will transcend. Now, just this past year, we had a very distinguished honor bestowed on us. Uh, Representative Charlie Rangel and Senator Carl Levin introduced to the Congress a bill which would uh, award the Congressional Gold Medal to the Tuskegee Airmen. This bill was signed last year, actually, but the medal was presented, as you heard in the introduction, on March 29th of this year in a ceremony in the Capitol Rotunda. And it was presented to over 300 of those who participated in the Tuskegee experience. Now, the Congressional Gold Medal is something that's been uh, awarded over the last couple of hundred years, the first person to get the Congressional Gold Medal was George Washington. And we had a number of other people, both in the, in the, in the uh, military life, in, in the entertainment fields, 
in various fields that got, had been awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. When they came to us and said, you know, who should we give this medal to? And we said, well, of course, those fighter pilots, the one that risked their lives, and they should get it. But in addition to that, those pilots couldn't have accomplished what they did without the mechanics and the ground crew and the, and the air traffic controllers and the ammunition people and all the administrative people that go to make up an operational training base and an operational, uh, uh, operational combat base. And so you really ought to give it to everyone that participated. And so they, they agreed. And we were able to identify about 300 of us that were still alive and still able to travel. And we gathered at, at the, at the, uh, in the Congressional, in the Congress, the Capitol Rotunda. And uh, we, we had a very great ceremony uh, presided over by President Bush and Nancy Pelosi and all of the leaders of Congress and Colin Powell was there. And it was just a, a tremendous experience. My wife and I both went back and participated in it. And uh, it was, we, we really greatly appreciated the honor that has been bestowed on us. Uh, it was kind of interesting. We had over 300 of these original Tuskegee Airmen. And we had went around to several of the build of the rooms in the in the Capitol for various activities, and we'd be jammed in a room, and they'd say, "Well, now we're going to move over here." And of course, uh, a good number of the Tuskegee Airmen were in wheelchairs, and so they said, "Well, okay, wheelchairs first. So all the guys with wheelchairs went out, and then, okay, canes next. <laughs> Everybody with canes had got out, and then the rest of us, you know, limped along. But it was great, and we enjoyed it. Uh, the, uh, I just want to conclude by telling you a little bit about the organization that we formed. We realized that it was important for us to make sure that this history wasn't forgotten. And so we formed a, a nonprofit, 501c3 corporation in 1963. We have 50 chapters, 51 chapters nationwide. And our objectives are uh, to foster the recognition and preserve the achievements of blacks in aviation, but more important, to inspire and motivate young, young men and women towards careers in aviation, aerospace, and other technical fields, and really to, help, to hopefully inspire them to prepare themselves and go after what they're interested in. And so we do a lot of talking to various schools and boys and girls clubs and, and, and other groups. And that's our mission, to try to reach out to the young people today and uh, make sure they realize how important it is for them to work toward a goal. So it, our organization is open to anyone who shares our objectives. If any of you would like to join us, we'd be delighted to have you. We have, uh, our national organization has a web page, www.tuskegeeairmen.org, and, uh, oh, I need to mention the scholarship program. The national organization awards 
45 scholarships every year to high school seniors. And our chapter in San Diego offers uh, additional assistance awards. So we're, and I have to, as a good reminder, we gratefully accept donations to our scholarship funds. And so here's how you can reach us. I'm the president of the chapter. Uh, we have a, a, a web page here in San Diego, Tuskegee Airmen, sandiego.org, or you can reach me at my email or telephone address. So with that, I'd like to conclude my prepared remarks and uh, after a short break, uh, take any questions that you might have. Thank you very much. How much educational background was required at that time that you signed up, and how much did you have? How much education is required to sign up for pilot training? I guess you was what? High school education was all that was required. Uh, I happened to have a little bit more than that. I had actually finished college, and I had my engineering degree. And uh, so that helped me along a little bit, got me through ground school, maybe a little easier than the other guys. But a number of the guys are right out of high school. A friend of mine was telling me that he graduated from high school one day, and he was in the Army the next day. And within uh, a year, he was flying 51s over in Europe. <laughs> yes. Mr. Maxwell, my, I don't have a question, but I have an observation that I made a number of years back when I first met you, and uh, I'm a retired naval aviator, sir, and my response and reaction then was the same one I'm having again today, that is, how have I waited so long to have such a vital, integral part of my background filled in by you. I made a uh, comment to a gentleman sitting right next to me. I said, you know, in my opinion, he is a very transparent and humble man. And that's my appraisal, and I thank you, sir, for letting me in again. Well, thank you for your comments. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. A much simpler question. How did you navigate to these cities? What, if, what navigational aids were available when you left uh, England? You didn't just head in the direction of Budapest and hope it was there, did you? <laughs> yes, that's right. The, and the Germans didn't help us out any by providing any navigational aids. Uh, it was, there, were, there weren't any you know, air traffic controllers directing the guys, so it was pretty much uh, navigation by... Well, what they used to call it, pilotage, by navigating from one uh, landmark to another and hoping that uh, what, what you saw on your maps was what was down below. But what about if there was cloud cover? Weren't you above the clouds a lot of the time? Up in the cloud, yes. Yes. Uh, well, you had to... Uh, part of our training was instrument uh, flying. And so we uh, were taught how to... Uh, fly through the clouds if necessary and, and make instrument landings, even though we didn't have any sophisticated landing 
systems. There was still some rudimentary, at least in this country, there was some rudimentary, uh, you know, uh, navigation systems. Over in Europe, they were pretty much on their own. And uh, so it was, uh, you know, you really knew what, had to know where you were and where you were going <laughs> to be able to get back safely. Thank you for that question. Yes. Lieutenant Maxwell, the Tuskegee Airmen amassed such a stellar record of achievement there in combat. To what extent do you feel that you all were motivated by this extra need to excel and to prove yourselves as black Americans? Well, there was no question that uh, we were motivated. We understood that, you know, here was an opportunity for us to show what we could do. And if we were successful, it had to help the overall fight for equality. So we did understand that, and we worked hard to make sure that we were as capable as could be. Of course, we never had any idea that that the success would be something that would follow us later in years. Uh, But we did realize its importance when we were going through the training. Thank you for that question. Yes, sir. Uh, Just two factual questions. First, Alagaru. I'm a City College boy myself. Alagaru, gara, gara. Good to see you. So the first question is, uh, when did you get out of City College? And the second question is, I was uh, in the 15th Air Force in Italy. Uh, where were the uh, Tuskegee men based in Italy? Uh, well, I'll ask, answer that second part. They, they were based, based in Ramatelli, Italy, and I'm not sure exactly how to describe where that is, but it's in the southern part of Italy. Do you know where it was related to Foggia? I beg your pardon? Do you know where it was related to Foggia? I heard that name. So it was nearby, nearby Foggia. In fact, I think there were some Air Corps uh, units assigned at Foggia, but it was in that area. And then, oh, your other part of your question, you wanted to know when I, when I graduated from City. <laughs> uh, 1948. 48? Okay, I'm class of 42. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, uh, let me correct myself. I graduated in 1942 from City College. We might have been classmates. We were yeah, probably. Were you, were you? <laughs> well, we'll have to talk about this. Were, were you there when the first girl was admitted? No, I, I don't remember that. Well, maybe I do. But anyway, at 42, and I was, uh, I, I was in the School of Technology. I was in engineering. So I got my mechanical engineering degree. And since you brought up City College, uh, Colin Powell was part of the ceremony at the, uh, the gold medal ceremony. And after the ceremony, uh, I went up to him, introduced myself, and he said, I s- said, you know, I'm a City College grad, too. And he said, oh, isn't that great? And he says, you know, City College was a great experience. And I agreed with him. And he said, you know what? They, they, have, they have named a building for me on the City University campus after me, and he says, I'm so proud of that. And uh, so uh, I had a chance to talk to him a little bit about, about it. And City College, 
was unusual because first of all, it was a free college. And so all of us poor kids who couldn't afford <laughs> to go to other colleges, uh, we got in and we got a college education. At one time it was called, and it was a very good education, very high standards. At one time it was called the poor man's Harvard. <laughs> so we have to talk about City College. I went to City College also. Oh, great. Well, yeah. <laughs> but, I did, it, but yeah. I did graduate from there. Uh, my question is, uh, when uh, the movie Tuskegee Airmen came out, how did you and your comrades feel about that movie? That's a good question, and we get asked that quite often. Well, first of all, the overall impact of that movie was tremendous, because a lot of people saw it, and for the first time they realized, you know, some of the things that happened. Now, they, you know, they, Hollywood did a good job of dramatizing it, and it, it turned out to be a very interesting movie to watch. Most of it was, was true, and the reason was one of the fighter pilots in the 332nd, uh, Bob Williams, uh, after the war, he thought that, that the, telling the story of the Tuskegee Airmen would, be a, would make a good movie. And so he wrote a script. And for about 10 years, he tried to get somebody interested in producing the script. Couldn't get anybody interested in it. But finally, HBO uh, said that they were going to do it. They brought Bob Williams on as a consultant, took his script, and then elaborated on it. So most of the incidents in that movie actually did occur, and they were told by Bob Williams, who was one of the Tuskegee fighter pilots. The airmen who were shot down and became prisoners of war, did they have anything to recount about their experiences different from white airmen who were shot down? Mm -hmm. Well, yes, several of them uh, did tell about some of their experiences. Uh, by and far, they felt that they were treated probably like most other prisoners of war, which was not good, but they weren't discriminated against uh, as far as they knew. And uh, so uh, they were able to survive, and there were some 30-odd uh, prisoners of war. Uh, one of the fellows who was at the ceremony was a prisoner of war, and he told a little bit about his experiences. There is a, another little story here about after the war, and then the prisoners were, were, were put on ships to come back to the United States, and, and uh, not only the black prisoners, but the white uh, American prisoners. And, and so they were on board ship, and everybody was you know, very friendly and whatnot, and no, no racial barriers on board ship. Uh, when they got into the harbor and they got off the ship and they saw a sign, said, white soldiers this way, color soldiers this way. Same old stuff. <laughs> One of the best things that happened to the people that served in the Second World War was the GI Bill. And obviously, uh, people who could be a high school student one day and be going to flight training the next were obviously first quality people and they had a successful service in the military. Do you have any idea how many of the Tuskegee Airmen took advantage of the GI Bill and got their college degrees? Do you know that they did it at a rate more or less than 
pilots from the Navy or from the Army? I can't give you an exact number, but I can tell you that there were many who did take advantage of it. And even though I had my bachelor's degree, I got my master's degree and my MBA, both on the GI Bill. And it was something that, uh, you know, we, uh, but it was something that a lot of uh, uh, Tuskegee Airmen, as well as a lot of other uh, veterans, did take advantage of. And we're, we were talking about that recently, that it's a, it's a shame that we don't have such a uh, procedure now for the veterans that are coming back to guarantee them some way to, to continue their education. Thank you. You had mentioned that the, at the ceremony in Washington, out of the 300 folks that were awarded, many of them were the ground crew type of folks. Were the ground crews for the Tuskegee Airmen, did they have to be black or were they white as well? Well, uh, initially, uh, there weren't enough either flying instructors or ground crew. So they were, they, they were white soldiers that were assigned. But then they had a, uh, a program for training black uh, ground crew men in all of, all of the necessary skills. And so I, when I got down to Tuskegee in 1944, uh, the entire ground crew and the entire instructor crew were, were black. So we had an entirely separate, <laughs> uh, segregated uh, uh, base right from the top on down. Another little question. You mentioned a minute ago white folks went this way, colored folks went that way. And you mentioned something just now about black airmen. What designation racially did they have in the 40s for you folks? Were you, were you considered black airmen, um, Negro airmen, color? What, 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 how did they designate you uh, color-wise in those years? Well, I, the term that was mostly wide, in use was, was Negro. You were classified as a Negro. And on my... Uh, military papers. That's the classification. I was looking at it the other day, and, and uh, discharge papers, and there was no question about it. You were, you were Negro, or the term black hadn't really come into to, to being uh, at that time. But uh, right from the time that you got into, you went into the military and went to the reception center, you were immediately uh, segregated and stayed that way throughout the service. Yes? Uh, two questions. Uh, one, what remains today of Tuskegee Army Airfield? And two... Uh, it, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. What remains one. today of that airfield? Oh, of the airfield? Yes. It was completely uh, dismantled. In fact, uh, when I left there in June of 1946, we closed it down. It's an open field. There's nothing left. Nothing has been built on that property either. No. Now, uh, at uh, Tuskegee Institute, which is now Tuskegee University, which is about five uh, miles away from the air base, that's still in existence, Tuskegee University, and the field, that primary field where we trained in the Stearmans, that field has been preserved and the National Park Service is building a memorial to the Tuskegee Airmen 
on Moton Field, as it's called. I think also there's a very nice gallery section at the 8th Army Museum in Uh Savannah uh, on the history uh, of the Tuskegee Airmen. My other question related to uh, what was asked just earlier, Uh, uh, you were asked whether or not uh, there were ground crew who were white. Uh, And my question relates to those who initially trained you at Tuskegee. I assume they were white and was that considered uh, to be good duty on their part? Were they reluctant, or did you have any difficulties with them? Well, I, I think, uh, no, I don't think we had any difficulties. I think they looked at it as an assignment, and they carried it out. And, uh, of course, I did say that the, uh, by the time I got down to Tuskegee, uh, it was almost an entirely uh, black operation. But the commanding officer, Colonel Parrish, was a white man, and he was an outstanding leader. He, he was very fair, and we, we had, everyone thought that he bent over backward to try to make sure that, the, that we got the right training and that we didn't have any problems. And so we, uh, every year we have an award, the Colonel Parrish Award, <laughs> in his memory. I went to college in the late 40s when all the veterans were returning, and uh, a friend I made uh, there, um, an African-American, he related that he had been a pilot um, during the war. And um, so my question was, were all African-American pilots, were they trained at Tuskegee, or were there other sources of, was he a Tuskegee Airman? they, they didn't use to go into that kind of detail. Well, all of the, at that time, until 1948, any pilot that was trained in the Army Air Corps was, uh, you know, was, well, either trained at Tuskegee Army Airfield or was trained with one of the operational black units. So I could look him up on your webpage or something and, and find out. Yes. If he did. Yes. And in fact, there was a fellow who, uh, undertook to record the names of all of the people that the all of the soldiers uh, that participated and before he passed he was able to get somebody to put that on a on a computer and there's a CD that you can get that has listed all of the names of the Tuskegee Airmen pilots as well as ground crew and that formed a base for when they said, who are you going to give that medal to, we, we referred to that database. And so we can probably track him down if you knew his name. I do know his name. Maybe you know in Northern California, James Goodwin. Do you know him? James Goodwin was his name? I, it's the name is familiar. I didn't. My other question is, now when, when somebody graduated and became a pilot, they became officers. Yes. What was the impact of uh, there being this group of black airmen on uh, relations within the Army and, within, and in the communities where, where they were? Well, okay, you um, bring up a very interesting uh, situation. Uh, the, um, the bomber group that was being formed, the 477th Bomber Group, uh, one of the bases that they were training at 
was uh, Freeman Field, which was in Indiana. And so we had a couple hundred, well, maybe a hundred, 150 black pilots stationed at Freeman Field. And there was one officer's club at Freeman Field, but it, they couldn't enter that officer's club. So that really was a challenge to them at that time. And uh, they were strategizing, you know, what to do. And some of the wiser uh, men said, look, if you do take an active opposition to this, well, you could be cited under the rules of war, you know, articles of war. So you can't do anything violent. So they decided to have a nonviolent approach. <laughs> and they took two or three guys would, at a time would go up to the door of the officers' club and try to enter, and they were turned back. And then another group would come up, and another group would come up, you know. So the idea was we'd wear them down. <laughs> One guy uh, got a little overambitious, and when the guy said he couldn't enter, he brushed on by him. And the uh, guard caught him and uh, court-martialed him. And that led to court-martialing the entire group of officers at that base for not uh, obeying uh, army restrictions. Uh, ultimately, the uh, army they realized that that was a mistake, and they, they pardoned, uh, or they, they, they dropped that. But this particular guy, it was on his record that he had been court-martialed and, and uh, I don't know whether he was discharged or not. But. And then about 10 years or so ago, somebody decided that they would try to get that removed from his record, and they were able to do it. And so we had a big celebration because he was exonerated from his... <laughs> He's, still alive. He's still alive, yeah. He lives up in L.A. <laughs> but uh, that was just one incident. It was a... After the war, these men were stationed in a number of different places. And, of course, one of the big problems was where do you, where do you live? Where do you bring your family? And there wasn't any housing. So that there were a number of problems associated with that that persisted on, up until the 60s and, and beyond. Thanks for that question. Yes. You mentioned Bessie Coleman as the first uh, black woman aviator, and I just wondered, uh, and that she was before World War II, was there any thought at any time of admitting women to train at Tuskegee? Uh, not as pilots. Um, I guess the, uh, the Army Air Corps hadn't quite got to that point yet. Uh, uh, so the answer to your question is no, there, there weren't any black women as pilots. Now, we did have nurse corps uh, there, you know, and women in other occupations, but, but not as pilots. And, of course, this, you know, after the war, uh, a number of the fellows tried to get uh, jobs as pilots with the commercial airlines without success. And it wasn't until the mid-50s that the airlines started uh, admitting uh, uh, blacks as pilots. And so today there are 
oh, several hundred black pilots, a number of captains flying in for the airlines. A little story about that. We have, uh, every year we have a convention, and uh, one year, oh, I don't know, five or six years ago, I met this young lady who was a flight attendant. And uh, she was telling me that, you know, she'd like to, really like to learn to fly. And uh, so I said, well, why don't you go ahead? And so uh, a couple of years later, I met her again at the convention. She was wearing wings, wings, and she had been uh, uh, put on as a, as a first officer in one of the airlines. And she was saying, well, you know, I was watching these guys when I was a flight attendant. I was watching them. And he said, she said, you know, that's something I could do. <laughs> and so she did. And uh, today we have, uh, I don't know, a dozen or so uh, African-American women, black women, who are pilots for the airlines, and a couple who are captains. So we've made some progress. But uh, there's still some progress to be made. Appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Thank you for listening.